Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It is uh, week two of a series that we started last week, obviously because it's week two. Uh, We started a series last week called Promises, Promises. And in a nutshell, this is basically a series that we're talking about God's promises. And so we'll start today with the first actual promise that we'll dig into. Last week, we kind of set the stage, uh, set the groundwork, the foundation of the idea that God keeps his promises. No matter how big they may be, he's big enough to keep those promises. No matter how long we may have to wait for them to be fulfilled, he always keeps his promises. No matter what other sort of details fit into whatever promise he has given or will give, Uh, He always keeps his promise. He is the God of the promise. So today we're going to look at a a statement that Jesus makes that is highly offensive. Now, when we read this in a second, you may not think it's offensive. But to the original hearers of this statement, it's highly offensive. And we'll talk about why. To the original reader, to some of the the first people to ever read uh, the Gospel of John, which is where we're going to be today, it may have sounded offensive. And so we're going to look at this statement. But this statement is absolutely powerful. And it's powerful both for the original audience, hearer, reader, and for us as well. This is, uh, and we may not even see what the promise is. That'll kind of be a theme throughout. It may not be obvious what the promise is. Possibly, maybe you'll get it right off the bat. But as we dive into it, I think we'll see an amazing, life-changing, life-giving promise from Jesus today. So it's one verse we're going to dig into today. It's John 8, verse 12, and here is what it says. Here's today's promise. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Let me read that again. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So we're going to walk through this one sentence, this one statement today, and see how it would be offensive to those hearing him say this, but yet it's powerful for them and for us. There's two levels of, of context. We talked about last week. Context is key to God's promises. We can't just pull out a random verse, kind of like what we're doing, and just assume we know what it means or claim a certain thing because it, it fits my life or my view or my situation. We have to see what's around that. And so we'll see two levels of context that will really make this verse a lot even more richer than it is just by reading it. And then we'll see this amazing promise that is for us. So let's look first at the larger context of this statement, this one verse in John 8, verse 12. So we have to go back to John 7 to get the full context of when and where Jesus is saying this statement. So as you read the beginning of John 7, you'll read that uh, they are beginning a very important Jewish festival. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Shelters. There's different uh, names for it. And so this would occur in, on our calendar. It kind of fluctuates because our calendar and the Jewish calendar don't line up. And so it'll be somewhere September, October uh, in our calendar. It's the third major Jewish feast of the year where pilgrims from all over the nation will go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So there are two kind of close together in the spring, and this one's in the fall. And so the two purposes really of this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, is at first it commemorates the end of the harvest season. So we've planted our crops, God was faithful, he multiplied, he brought the harvest in, we've taken it, and now we kind of get to relax in the wintertime. So this is about a seven to eight day long festival, uh, a week long party, wouldn't that be nice? And uh, so they're commemorating the end of God's faithfulness in the harvest season. But secondly, what it also does is it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or Tents because it also commemorates their ancient ancestors, the Hebrews, who escaped Egyptian bondage and God's faithfulness to them as they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they lived in tents or tabernacles or booths is why they call it any of those three names. And so it commemorates and celebrates God's faithfulness to their ancestors from long ago. As they traveled in the desert, God took care of them. Um, well, the ones that didn't die, right? So the, the problem with this when I was reading this is like, well, didn't like the first generation all die? Yes, but that was for a different reason. But their children and grandchildren, God provided for them. So much so, Scripture says that they you know, only had like one pair of clothing and shoes for 40 years, and that was enough for them. Like, that's faithful. They didn't die. God made water where they're out of a rock, where they're can't, what water can't come from. All sorts of miracles like that that God provided through this time in the wilderness. So it's celebrated here at the Feast of Tabernacles. So one big part of this celebration is outside of the temple where the main times of worship would be throughout that week, there were, they're called bowls, but you, I want you to think of like four huge bonfires that would be lit as part of this celebration throughout the week. And they would burn throughout the night. And so Jerusalem and the temple is like one of the tallest places in the region. So some would say it's a city on a hill. Remember that, that'll be important. We'll come back to that in a minute. So Jerusalem is seen as the city on a hill. And really with these lights, you can see the lights at this time through this festival from miles around. So not only is this a city on a hill, but it looks like the light of the world. So Jesus says this statement about himself in the middle of this scenario. People from all over Israel have come. There are tens of thousands of travelers and pilgrims in the most holy city in their religion, lighting these huge fires, celebrating God's faithfulness. And Jesus is saying in the middle of this, I am the light of the world. That's the context in which Jesus says this. Now, going back to John 7, he's already been teaching in John 7 for a little bit. And he makes this statement. He, he, his teachings basically start this conversation or debate in the crowd. And some people are saying, okay, you're talking a lot like the Messiah would talk if you were him. You, you, you're kind of saying things that maybe the prophets predicted some guy would say in the distant future. And so there's a debate with the people in the crowd if Jesus is their Savior, their Deliverer, their Messiah. And the, obviously it would cause quite a bit of controversy and argument and disagreement. And so he start, he just, he's not even saying anything really offensive in John 7 yet. He gets there in John 8. But they already start, the rumblings are already here about Jesus saying these things about himself. 
And then here in John 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. And then later in John 8, he gets really offensive. He uses this term, I am. We've talked about it before. We actually did a series uh, last year. We were at church online, but uh, about these I am statements in the book of John. So here's why the term I am is not offensive to us, right? If I say I am Stephen, you're like, yeah, we know that. So this term I am in the way that Jesus uses it is the same way that God describes himself to Moses in the burning bush in the book of Exodus. This term, I am, in the Greek, it's uh, ego ami, okay? Jesus says those words, and everyone knows what he's saying, what he's claiming. He's not just saying, I'm the light of the world. He's not just using a cute metaphor. At the end, he even says, before Abraham was, I am, which you would think is terrible grammar, but the reason he says it that way is that term, I am, ego ami, he's saying, I am God, I am divine. Before Abraham, your beloved ancestor and founder of your religion ever existed, I am. So that term, he says, I was, I am, and I will always be. This obviously causes some problems for the crowd. It is incredibly offensive to them. It is blasphemous to them. This man, who is from a blue-collar you know, town up north, a working-class family, who is really a, a very kind of small sort of little teacher in his region. He's claiming divinity. So they try to kill him. He basically, at the end of John 8, runs for his life. He escapes a mob trying to kill him because as far as they're concerned, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming God. He's saying, I am divine. So not only is he claiming to be the Messiah in John 7, but in John 8, he says, I'm even more than that. So that's the larger context of this statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. That is a charged statement. That is a mouthful that Jesus has said in just a few short words. That's the larger context. The immediate context is actually a story that Kim talked about on Mother's Day, and so we're going to revisit that just for a minute here to look at immediately following this event that we're going to talk about, Jesus says this statement, like right after, the next verse. So John 8, 1 through 11, is this story of this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. It's a very famous story, and if you were here on Mother's Day, you heard Kim do an excellent job going through that. So let's look at it again. So this, these religious leaders, Pharisees, maybe Sadducees, the religious elites, the holy, the holy men of town, right? They catch a Now, this has always been weird to me. How do they catch a woman in the act of adultery? I mean, how gross are these guys potentially, like peeping in door holes and stuff? You know, it's like, crack, you know, just barging in on somebody's house. I don't know how that works. That's just how John records that she was caught, or they claim, they claim she was caught in the act of adultery. And so here's famously what they do. This is, uh, so this is John 8, verses 4 through 6. So just before verse 12 that we are looking at today, there's what happened. They brought her out in the street, and they, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Again, remember today's promise, John 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. So the issue here is these religious leaders... Whether they realize it or not, whether they believe it or not, whether they admit it or not, they are walking in darkness. And Jesus, 
as the light, exposes them, exposes their darkness. So we just read in verse 6, John is very nice to these guys. He said they were using this question as a trap for Jesus. Let me be a little more harsh with these men. They weren't just using this question. They were using this woman to try to trap Jesus. They may have been, they may have been following her for some time, thinking and hearing rumors about who she is. And they're like, we can pounce on that. We can take advantage of this opportunity. If we find her going to this guy's house that she's married, he's married, whatever the situation is, we're going to use her to f- further our own purpose. They're using this woman and her darkness to really try to deflect their own darkness. They're pretending to be the light, to shine it on this wicked, evil, sinful woman, yet in their hearts, they're just as wicked, evil, and sinful. They are walking in darkness. So I've got a couple of pictures here of uh, some animals that they live in the darkness. So on the left, you can see the size. It'll fit in the palm of your hand clearly. Uh, This is a small fish-like creature called a kandaroo. It's actually a a form of a parasite. It's a parasitic fish that lives in the Amazon, and based on its sort of translucent color and the darkness of the water, you can't see it if you're in the water. So they use that to their advantage. They walk or they swim, I guess, in the darkness. So they will go inside the gills of larger fish and just feed off of them. And they can expand in great size to hold a lot of the blood specifically that they go for. They've actually been known to infect humans as well who would swim or bathe in the Amazon River. And that and I'm not going to get into details. You can look that up online and gross yourself out on your own time. But anyway, this animal thrives in the darkness. And it's a parasite. It feeds, it uses other things for its own survival. The second fish there, maybe if you've seen Finding Nemo, you probably have recognized that fish. It's, it's called an anglerfish. They did a great job of getting that pretty right. Um, so this anglerfish also lives in the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. It lives in darkness. And this little thing that comes off its head, it's a light. But there, this fish uses a form of light to attract bait. Because if you're down in the deepest pits of the ocean and you're letting off a little bit of light, other fish are going to be attracted. What's this? What's this thing in the deepest, darkest ocean? What's this light? And they attract to it, and that gives the anglerfish time to consume its food. It uses a false form of light to attract and destroy other things. It lives in darkness. These two animals are a perfect example of what these religious leaders are doing in John 8. They are sucking the life out of someone else for their own gain. They're a parasite. They use false light to attract prey. They're they're like the anglerfish. They're using other people for their gain to detract from their own walk in darkness. So as we see here, what lives in darkness? Ugly things. Dangerous things. Deceptive things. Deadly things live in darkness. Spiritually, it's the same. Spiritually, what lives in darkness? Sin, hypocrisy, pride, judgmentalism. That's what these religious leaders are living in. They won't admit it. They won't own it. They try to deflect it. They try to put off this false light. And Jesus, as the true light, exposes them for who they are, exposes their true motive. Because what does he say? He says, they they want to stone her for her sin. And he says, okay, I'll make you a deal. You can do that. 
whoever is, is without their own sin, they can be the first one to cast the first stone. And obviously all these men leave knowing they can't claim perfection by throwing a stone at this woman. They know they've been caught in their own trap. So that's the Pharisees in their darkness. But what about the woman here? She's also walking in darkness, right? She's, she's caught in the act of adultery. Well, the problem is her sin's already been exposed here, hasn't it? I mean, she's been drug out in the street openly. People are ready to stone her, to kill her. She's already been openly shamed by the whole community. So her, the light, in a, in a way, has already been shown on her own sin, on her own darkness. But for the woman, the second part of this promise from John 8, 12 is the key for this woman. Because remember, he says, I am the light of the world, so he exposes the Pharisee's sin. But then the second part, he says, if you follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. So as he exposes the Pharisee's own darkness and their own sin, what he does for this woman is the second part. He, give, he shines the light on her that leads to life. I mean, he, what he does exactly, perfectly, is he actually gives her life back to her. She is condemned rightly to death by their law. She is ready to be stoned rightly by their law. So what he does is he literally gives her life back to her, physically keeps her from being killed in the street. And then spiritually, he gives her an opportunity to live a different kind of life. Because when the, all the men leave and he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. He said, well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. So he saves her life physically, literally, from being stoned to death, and then he gives her an opportunity for a new life. The light of the world really came into play here. So again, that's the immediate context. John 8, 1 through 12 is that story. John 8, I'm sorry, 1 through 11 is that story. John 8, 12, right after that, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. Pretty powerful when you put all this together, the, the lights of the temple that are shining like a great city on a hill, like the light of the world, Jerusalem, you know, the, the, part of the celebration too that, we, that I failed to mention is that the Jewish people took this opportunity with these lights here to basically say, hey, yeah, we're a big deal. We're chosen by God himself. We're his people. We're, we're, we're pretty cool, right? And Jesus says, hey, 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 here's the thing. All of this and I say this a lot, but Jesus does this all the time. He says, all of this is always talking about me. It was the point. The lights on the hill, the temple where you worship, it's all getting ready for me, which is why they try to kill him, and eventually they succeed not long after this, these events happen. So we might be looking at all this in, in the background and the history and, all the, and the context and say, okay, that's great. It even means maybe more. It's deeper now than it was even before. But what do I do with that? What, how, what does that mean for me? How does that affect me here and now? Well, I would, I would submit, I would suggest that this same promise, this same statement that was for the Pharisees in a certain way and for this woman in a certain way and for the community worshiping at this feast in a certain way is also for us. It's a promise that is still in effect for us. So let me ask you some questions, first of all, about this story that we just mentioned in, in Luke, I'm sorry, in John 8 with the Pharisees and the woman. Let me ask you some tough questions, and I, I've had to deal with these this week too, so it's not me picking on you, it's God just doing what he wants to do. So here's the question, are you walking in darkness? 
That's this, what we have to ask ourselves this question when it comes to this verse. Maybe like the Pharisees, you are hiding sin. You're suppressing sin. And maybe you know, most of the time we know it's wrong, but that's why we're hiding it. We're suppressing it. Because we're thinking, if anyone ever found out, what would they think? If anyone knew that I did that or had done that or I'm involved in this, what would they think? It's not, all, it's not always pride that keeps us from letting out sin. It's just fear, which could be pride. It's an ugly cousin maybe. But we have, sometimes we think, well, I have an image to maintain. I can't come clean about that. I can't confess or, or admit that. I, I've got this, you know, squeaky clean image to maintain. Maybe like the Pharisees were projecting pride. I don't have a problem. Nope, nothing to see here. Yeah, we just sort of live in this thing where it's all about trying to push the attention off of us so that we can live in darkness because we get used to it. It becomes normal. It becomes natural. It becomes convenient. It becomes what we know. Maybe similarly we justify sin. Well, I, I have a good excuse for that. Or there's always a reason why it's okay for me but not for thee sort of thing. Sometimes we think that way or live that way or behave that way. It's not a big deal. N- you know, n- nothing to see here. Move along. Or we can be like, don't judge me. Don't look at me. You got your own stuff. And there's some truth to that. But that can also be a deflection tactic that we use to live and walk in darkness. Or like the Pharisees at times, we can judge others to deflect that blame. If I can make everybody else look like they're down here, then I can appear like I'm way up here. And it's like, no, we're probably all maybe sort of here, right? But we tend to do that if we're not careful. We can be like the Pharisees living in darkness and for any of these reasons. Or maybe we're like the woman in John 8. Maybe, maybe you live in guilt. Maybe the thing that you can't get over was 20 years ago, but you just can't work through it. You just can't get over. You replay that in your mind over and over and over, and it trips you up over and over and over. That's a form of walking in darkness, being overcome by guilt. Maybe like this woman, you're, you're living in shame because you know what you've done. Maybe some others know what you've done, and you can't hold your head up. You can't look people in the eye anymore. You, you always wonder, sort of like at the, at the beginning, what people will say. What must they think about me because they know this dark, dirty little secret about me? Or they know the real me. Like, I'm pretty good at projecting a good image, but they really know how I am, and they really know who I am, and we just, we live in shame. Maybe that describes you. Maybe you're in this cycle of regret. It's kind of this coulda, woulda, shoulda. That's your life. We're always looking backward instead of trying to move forward. That's living in darkness. Well, if I had just done a different thing here, that'd be different. Maybe that's true, but what are you going to do about the next decision? That, that's done. That's over. It can't be fixed. can't be changed. You can't swap it out. You can't erase it. You can't hit rewind. What are you going to do next? So we play the coulda, woulda, shoulda game, the cycle of regret, and we, look, we end up walking, looking behind us, and then we end up walking in further darkness and making more mistakes and living in more regret that adds to the cycle. That's a form of living in darkness. And maybe in a similar way, you are hopeless and afraid about the future. Because of your checkered past, I don't know if I should make that decision. 
or I don't know if they'll say yes if I propose, or I don't know if they'll be my friend if I confess to a thing I did to them 10 years ago. We live in this uh, darkness. This, it clouds our vision. It clouds our judgment. It darkens our spirit and our heart just because of we're f- afraid of the future. Well, what if I make that mistake again? Or what if I, what if I you know, go off this cliff again? Or what if they reject me again? And it's over and over and over. Those are all forms of darkness. But the promise of John 8, verse 12, is that Jesus is your light. He's my light. All of these things at some time, maybe we have or are or will struggle with, but Jesus is our light. So let's read a couple of these, a couple more verses to illustrate this further. So 1 John 1, 7, one of the letters the guy that wrote the Gospel of John is writing a letter here to a church, and he says this, If we walk in the light as he, that's God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So yes, go back to the story in John 8. Yes, the light will expose our sin. Yes. But it doesn't expose us to leave us there in the street ashamed and afraid and alone. What the light of Christ does as we walk in it is he does the same thing he did for the woman. Yes, it will expose our sin, but he's there to, says, purify us, to cleanse us from sin, to forgive us of sin. That's what the light does. It's a purifying agent. Not just exposure, but purification is part of walking in the light. But if we walk in darkness, we can't walk in light. If I want to hold on to my sin, I'm not walking in the light. If I'm, if I'm consumed by fear and shame and guilt, I'm not walking in the light that Christ wants me to walk in. I have to make a choice. I have to let that other thing go and step into the light to walk in that. That's what First John is telling us. Two verses from Psalm 119 uh, say this, both of them very famous. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So again, not only is Jesus being the light to forgive us of sin or our past or our guilt or our shame, he does that, but there's a second part to that. You won't have to walk in darkness, right? Because you'll have the light that leads to life. So what this does is the light of Christ helps us to walk forward, to move forward to overcome the sin and guilt and shame and darkness that we have been in and maybe are in so we can step into and walk in something better. It's a future tense thing. It helps to overcome fear, doubt, insecurity. It helps us to give us wisdom. One way to think of the problem of walking in spiritual darkness, it's the whole floor of your spiritual life is, is scattered with Legos. Okay, parents, you know what I'm talking about, okay? If we try to walk through our child's bedroom at night with the lights off, we will step on something, and it will hurt. Or we'll trip on something and fall, and it will hurt, okay? That, in the darkness, that's our spiritual life. I can't get over that thing because I won't turn the light on. I keep stepping into the same thing, the same sin. I can't get over it because I won't turn the light on. So it says here that, If we turn the light on, we can avoid the Lego minefield of our spiritual walk. 
we can more easily see, oh, baby doll on the floor, let's walk around that, or let's pick that thing up, or let's scoot this over out of the way to give a better way forward. That's what the light of Christ does. That's why it's so important to do that. And it kind of reminds me of this image here. So I have an image here of the eternal flame, the John F. Kennedy eternal flame in Washington, D.C., or it's in Arlington, Virginia. Um, so right after his death, they set up this, this memorial for him. And uh, it's been there for however many years now, 60, almost 60 years. And so here's the thing about the It is called the eternal flame because it's not supposed to go out, but at least twice it has. So soon after it was built, there was actually a school group that came on a field trip, and apparently one of the kids poured water on the flame, and it, it went out, as flames will tend to do when water is poured on them. And then a few years later, there was a huge uh, storm uh, that extinguished the flame and knocked out sort of the, the power to it as well. And so at least twice, this eternal flame has gone out. The light has not been consistently good throughout all of its history. And even with the light being there most of the time, the flame being there most of the time, they have to upgrade and update the facility around it so it can maintain and do what it's supposed to do. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I've been there. Um, it's, it's kind of not super impressive, but when, but when you think about what it represents and you see the, the scenery around it, it's like, oh, this is a pretty, pretty cool place. And it's right there on the edge of Arlington National Cemetery, which when you see all of the graves there and then look here and see the flame, there's a couple more there as well, and a wall, or sort of a half wall around it, and the view, you're just, you just understand what this means. But with that being said, this flame has gone out before. This eternal flame has gone out. But the light of Christ never goes out. He's faithful. He's consistent. He's always working. He's always shining. He, his battery never runs out. You know, he never trips a breaker. He never, you know, never dims. It never, he never gets tired. He doesn't have to recharge the batteries or be plugged in. So this is the promise that we have, that this light, the light of God's word shining our path, the light of Christ shining on our lives is reliable. It's faithful, and it's true. As we, before we wrap it up, there is one bonus promise that I'm going to connect with this one that, we'll, that we talked about earlier about the lights at the temple, the city on a hill uh, shining brightly. Let's look at this bonus promise from Jesus. So he says in John 8, I am the light. But in Matthew 5, here's what he tells his followers. He says, you are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. You see the imagery here? But go back to John 8, John 7. The imagery is the same. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So the promise here, the bonus promise, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he says, you are the light of the world. Because remember, John 8, he says, if you follow me, you'll have the light that leads to life. What that looks like is Matthew 5. Then you are kind of little lights of the world. That's what the word Christian means, little Christ. So it was originally like a, a slam on followers of Jesus in the first century. Oh, they're so cute. They're little Christ. We'll call them Christians. They didn't call themselves that for a long time. That was a, the people who didn't follow the way called them that. And then they're like, yeah, we, we kind of are. Jesus says we're the light. So we'll take that as a badge of honor. And so he says that we are not the ultimate light, but we have his light within us. And then one more verse, John 1, 6 through 8. 
God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. That describes every follower of Jesus. We are not the light, but Jesus says we are the light of the world. We are what's left now that he's not on the earth anymore. So like John, we're witnesses to the light. We're reflections of the light. Another analogy to think about. Think about your life of faith as sort of a solar panel. The light, the light powers you in your faith. It gives you what you need to do what you need to do. And then the power that's stored within you from the light helps others to be helped from the power of that light. We are reflections of the light of the world. That's sort of a bonus promise, maybe something to, to chew on and think about even this week. It's not just that Jesus is the light to help us, but that we have his light to help others. That's, that's the point of our faith. So without the light, we walk in darkness. We're lost in sin. We're lost in guilt. We're lost in shame. We're lost in ourselves. We lack direction. We're trapped in fear. But in the light... We experience freedom and forgiveness and hope and direction and purpose and power so that as we are the light of the world from the ultimate light, we can live a different kind of life because the light leads to life. And so the life that we live through that light helps others in their life as well.